Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome to the Reliability Matters podcast. I'm so glad you're with me today. Like most manufacturers, the electronic manufacturing industry relies on countless suppliers to fulfill its manufacturing needs. I'm quite certain there is no one within the EMS space who fabricates their own boards using materials produced in-house, operates their own semiconductor foundries, designs and manufactures their own components, and produces soldering materials for their reflow process. Our industry relies on a vast network of manufacturers throughout the world to build even the simplest electronic assembly. Intellectual property security, cybersecurity, national security are all hot topics today. No one wants their hard-earned intellectual property stolen. This is most true, perhaps, within the U.S. military establishment. There are, at present, Numerous policies, procedures, and regulations designed to protect various parts of our supply chain from, shall we say, unscrupulous people and companies. Today, companies are concerned about controlled unclassified information, or CUI, and controlled technical information, CTI. And that brings us to IPC 1791. What is IPC 1791, you ask? Well, my guest today, IPC's Randy Cherry, will explain. Randy is Director of Validation Services at IPC. Validation Services is a series of certification programs that qualify products and processes to the IPC industry standards. Once companies have completed their certification, they are listed as an IPC trusted supplier on the IPC Validation Services website. Randy has over 30 years experience in engineering with printed circuit board and backplane fabs, high-speed press-fit backplane connectors, and surface mount technology assembly practices. He is a certified SMT process engineer and an IPC auditor, and he is my guest today on this episode. Well, hey, Randy. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Well, good morning to you. Um, you are... Well, I'm in California. You are, are you in Illinois? Is that where I'm catching you today? Yes, I'm in Illinois, uh, in the western uh, suburbs of Chicago, about 50 miles west of O'Hare Airport. Okay. Well, far enough away, you don't hear the planes roaring in. (laughs) Hopefully not. But close enough that you can catch a flight. That's that's convenient. Not too close, not too far. Well, thanks again for joining me today. Um, What brought you to IPC? Well, as you had mentioned earlier, I uh, had a long career in manufacturing. Uh, I've been working in manufacturing probably since the 80s now, I guess. And I spent the last 21 years at a company called Telabs in Naperville, Illinois. And uh, Telabs was also an IPC member. And I was looking for something different, a new challenge. And um, I found out that uh, IPC was... um, looking for someone to start up this new department called, then it was called the Validation Business Unit, which was later renamed to Validation Services. So I had an opportunity to start to work at IPC, and uh, we started basically with just the IPC standards, and uh, we built the department from the ground up. Excellent. Uh, So 
the, I'm, we're going to talk about IPC 1791 and, and the validation mm -hmm. services kind of in general. Um, and just to put things into you know, a framework, about six years ago, IPC and the executive agent for printed circuit boards and interconnect technology, that's a, that's a, that's a word, um, <laughs> worked together to form IPC, uh, an IPC committee. First, I know who IPC is. I think everyone in my audience knows who IPC is, at least everyone in my audience connected to the EMS world. Um, mm -hmm. Who or what is the executive agent for printed circuit boards and interconnect technology? I've been in this industry for 37 years, and I don't know if I should be embarrassed to admit this, but I've never heard of that very long-named industry or, or agency. Who are they? What are they? Well, the executive agent obviously is a is a department that we partnered with here to help develop this program and several people from the executive agent serve on the 2-19b ipc committee that helped uh, create and develop the ipc 1791 standard but but the executive agent team that we work with is based in crane indiana there at the naval base and basically the executive agent, it's driven by a Department of Defense directive. And you ready for this? It's 5101.18 E as in Edward. That's the DOD directive that uh, basically drives the executive agent. Hi, here's my business card. Yeah, yeah, here you go. That's great. It's gotta be a, a business card the size of a, of a legal document. <laughs> Our tax dollars hard at work. I can only imagine what their email address is. <clears throat> But basically, the executive agent acts as a facilitating body, providing access to, you know, the, the definition is reliable, reliable trust and affordable printed circuit board fabrication and with assembly to products and interconnect technology. Basically, they're facilitating, helping the DOD out, letting them know what's going on in the industry, I guess is the best way to summarize it. Yeah. So is executive agent, is the executive agent a government entity or they're an entity that serves the DOD? They're a government a government entity okay. yes, that serves the All DOD. Right. That's the best way to, to capture it. Right, right. Okay, that, that makes sense. Thanks for explaining that mystery to me. I gave uh, it a try. <laughs> no, you did a good job. I, now I feel a little bit more educated. That's one thing I love about hosting the show is I, <laughs> I get to ask questions because uh, for things that I don't know about. So it's great. Um, tell me more about IPC's validation services. What is a validation service? Why does it exist in the first place, and who does it serve? Uh, that's a great question, Mike. Um, I started with IPC around uh, 2013. As I mentioned earlier, validation services hadn't quite been created yet, so I had the opportunity to work with several good IPC folks to uh, develop this program. But uh, basically, it was driven by the OEMs, the IPC members, felt that they would like to see a program that validates that their suppliers are following the IPC standards, that their products and processes were meeting the IPC standards. So with that in mind, you know, we started, we have three basic programs that validation services covers. First one, is built around two acronyms that have been around a long time. These are our audit qualification programs, the QPL, which is the Qualified Products List, and the QML, which is the Qualified Manufacturers List. Now, QPL and QML have been around a long time. A lot of people have used those acronyms. So at Validation Services, we just kind of 
just copied those and, you know, basically took the IPC standards and started developing audit programs around the IPC standards, focusing on the shall statements. And Mike, if you're familiar with our standards, shall statements, you know, make up all of the requirements that are in the standards. And um, we started with the um, with the major standards, you know, our top sellers, and um, we developed a program around the J standard 001 and the IPC A 610. As you know, those are our soldering standards. J standard 001 has your requirements, and IPC 610 has the acceptability criteria. So we developed uh, that was one of our early programs that we developed prior to the 1791. So we have a few programs in that bucket. And then we started, um, when we got out and started meeting with members and non-members of IPC, we found that there were some companies that just weren't familiar with IPC or the IPC standards, similar to what you said earlier about the executive agent. So we created another program called IPC Standards Gap Analysis. And some people view that as a prerequisite to an audit, like for the QPL QML program. But it's more of a, uh, we'll send in folks from the IPC team to take a look at the company's processes and see how they stack up to the standards, like I said, like a gap analysis. And we find, and we'll write a report with um, findings and recommendations. And we feel that kind of helps companies out, get them more comfortable working with IPC and get them more comfortable with the IPC standards. The third program is called Technology Solutions. And that's more of a troubleshooting, problem-solving program where the IPC team will come in and work on a specific problem. Like for example, cleaning, something you know something about. And um, you know maybe we'll focus on why the boards aren't getting as clean as they should be. And we'll work with the customer to help them solve their problem. So those are our three main um, programs that we offer at Validation Services. I believe that answers the question. Absolutely. So in doing uh, my research for this conversation, um, I'm reading quite a bit about the uh, quote-unquote four pillars of trust. And a lot of the questions I'm going to ask you about um, the, the validation services in 1791 specifically uh, will be about the four pillars of trust. So first, let's, uh, for my audience's sake, let's identify what the four pillars of trust are. Okay, thank you, Mike. Yeah, basically, those are the building blocks that the IPC committee came up with. Once again, this is the 2-19B committee, came up with to help develop the 1791 standard. And the, the first one is quality. And uh, the second one was uh, supply chain risk management, then security. And the last one was chain of custody. Yeah, excellent. So let's dive into each one of those separately. So let's, you know, let's break it down. Let's break down these four right. pillars of trust, beginning with quality. How does the IPC validation service help to monitor or control or qualify, if you will, quality? Okay. Well, basically what, I mean, once again, we developed this 1791 standard and the QML program working with the executive agent and the 2-19B committee. So starting with quality, we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. We wanted to look at what QMS or qualified ma um, management systems companies had. And one requirement that everyone agreed on is that you had to have your AS9100. You know, the, I, sh I forgot to mention that the 1791 is a DOD focused document. So we're focused on that military aerospace sector. 
and companies who participate in that sector typically have their AS9100 already. So if they had that, that was one of the first steps in, in the process to meet the quality. And let's just uh, review uh, AS9100 is? Well, AS9100 started, basically companies would start with their ISO 9001. I think most people have heard of that. Yep. And that kind of covers pretty much anyone in the industry. But AS9100 steps it up. It's kind of a requirement for the mill aerospace industry. And it takes a deeper dive into the quality you know, metrics that uh, the companies have to go through. It's a very long, extensive process that a company has to go through to get that level of certification. Companies have to work very hard for that. Um, also, I want to mention that we also look at other things as part of the quality. Like if you're a printed circuit board fabrication shop, we'll look to see if uh, you've been certified to the mill specs, like the 31032 or the 55110. We'll take a look at that. We, uh, we also look at if you're a NADCAP accredited. So there's other things that we look at too, but but it, but it all starts off of the, with the AS9100. That, that's an absolute requirement that's in the standard that uh, companies have to meet. So if I'm an assembler and I'm putting together boards for the Navy for, or the Army or whatever, um, mm -hmm. part of the uh, certification program will be to look at my vendors, for example, my board fabricator, to make sure that they, are, uh, they have the appropriate qualifications. It, it, is that you're following the, the breadcrumbs through the uh, supply chain, mm -hmm. basically, to make sure Correct. that every member of the supply chain where it is appropriate has a, a the, the the correct certification am, am i right right and that's a great lead into the second um, exactly. pillar here supply Sup chain risk management the word supply chain right now is just right. as soon as as soon as you said supply exactly. chain i'm sure half my audience just stuck their head up you know it's like yeah because that's in the news these days for mm -hmm. completely different reasons. You know, <laughs> that's supply true. chain is almost an oxymoron because that implies there is a supply, right? <laughs> but um, somewhere, yeah. somewhere there's a supply. Yeah. So uh, yeah, let's talk about how supply chain and 1791 uh, dance together. Well, basically, what the committee did again with supply chain risk management, they wanted to focus on the problem areas, uh, making sure, for example, that you have dual sources of supply, that you're not single sourced or sole sourced on a particular item, especially with today's environment that can shut down a manufacturing facility or even a circuit board fabrication uh, situation. So they definitely focus on that. Um, obviously, counterfeit detection is very important in this standard. Uh, counterfeiting has been talked about for several years. I know it, it's a big issue with the printed circuit board assembly area, but uh, once again, it can also happen with laminates too. We've seen that. So uh, we spend a lot of time working with that. Um, obsolescence is another key point in the standard that we look at with the supply chain. Also, we focus on financial checks. We find that a lot of companies don't do a deep dive on financial checks on their suppliers. And as I mentioned before, that kind of goes along with the dual sourcing too. You know, if something happens, you have a, I don't know, like a tsunami somewhere and uh, you know, something happens and the supplier goes down, where can you get your supply to keep your, keep your manufacturing going? So that, that's, uh, that's a lot of the focus with the supply chain. Uh, right now, I, I know you're not in manufacturing now. You're, you're in the press box looking down on manufacturing um, <laughs> from that good 30,000 foot view, but... Uh, since we've talked about supply chain, let me just kind of uh, veer off the road a little bit into the shoulder and, and 
what's your view on the supply chain situation right now? I'm hearing rumblings of a very slight improvement. I don't know if if it's just because we're numb to it and, and we've been desensitized uh, or if it truly uh, has signs of improvement. Are, are you, you know, your ears are to the track, uh, so to speak. Are you hearing uh, any rumblings of it getting better, it's worse, it's the same? Well, when I'm out in the field, if I happen to be out doing an audit or talking to customers, you know, I hear different stories. But uh, but basically, I, I basically rely on the on our IPC uh, team, our advocacy team out in Washington D.C. That's headed up uh, by Chris Mitchell and his staff, and uh, they they're the ones that really have their ears to the ground on this. And uh, you know, they put out a weekly uh, newsletter and email that comes out, and I read that every Friday, and that 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 keeps me up to date with what's going on. But, uh, but yeah, right now it's kind of a moving target and I, I don't think we're out of the woods yet. I think it's still gonna take some time before things, if you wanna use the term, what is normal anymore, you know, <laughs> before things will get back to maybe how they were just a little bit in the past. But, uh, but I always encourage everyone to check with our advocacy team out in Washington to get the latest and greatest on that. Yeah, I think there's two terms that can define, uh, define 2020, 21, 22, uh, one of them is you're on mute. That seems to be a very common phrase. And, and the other one is oh. new normal, <laughs> right? So the you new normal you is you're on mute, right? That's, that seems to be, if I can never hear those terms again, I'd be, I'd be very happy. Yep, uh, the, I agree. The third pillar of trust is security. Now that, uh, particularly today, is a hot button topic. Um, mm -hmm. you know, every, seems like every few weeks I'm getting notifications from uh, you know, from Apple to, you know, quickly do a security update on my phone right. because they found vulnerabilities. Um, I'm, I'm, anytime I enter my password into a website, uh, I'm given a warning that, you know, that password has been compromised some other site and, and I should change it immediately. I mean, and these are just consumer versions of security. I can only mm -hmm. imagine what goes on in, in the military world. Um, so, you know, the, the, the world, the, the word security is, you know, obviously highly contextual. And when you talk about security within the context of validation services, um, what, what do you mean by that? And what does the validation service uh, provide in relation to security? Well, when we were working on the committee and we got to the security section, once again, as I mentioned in the quality section, we kind of wanted to build off of what was already out in the industry. And the NIST SP800-171, which covers cybersecurity reporting and other things that go along with that, it's kind of an IT-driven type uh, program. We wanted to build off of that and those 110, uh, pra I guess they're called practices, they're requirements, and there's 14 domains or families that make up the NIST SP800-171. So we wanted to start with that. And basically to meet the IPC 17.1 standard, you have to demonstrate compliance to the NIST. You got some more acronyms I'm going to throw at you. You have to show us your SSP, which is your system 
security plan, and then you also have to show us your POAM, which is your plan of actions and milestones. And these are two very important documents that a customer needs to take care of if they're moving towards getting their NIST compliance. And we'll talk more about NIST later when we talk a little bit about CMMC. There's some there's some uh, interesting uh, contrast there. But we started the security with that. But then we took it further than that. Um, we wanted to make sure that companies had their ITAR and their ear registrations. Now, if you're, there's more acronyms, you know, the, the uh, International uh, Traffic and Arms Regulation and the Export Administrative Regulation, you know, controlling what you export. And then, of course, ITAR, that, that acronym is used all over the military and aerospace industries. Also, it's in the standard, they talk about perimeter, uh, the building, making sure the building is secure. There's uh, certain questions we'll ask the receptionist to make sure that they know when they're letting people into the building if it's secured. You know, citizenship is something that's checked quite quite often. Which kind of goes to uh, ITAR right there, right? Correct. That kind of goes along with ITAR. Uh, the standard talks about non-disclosures or NDAs. There's another acronym. Also, uh, background checks on employees, including criminal background checks, are also a requirement of the standard. And uh, all this falls under the security bucket. And one more important thing you just indicated earlier with your cell phone is a portable electronic devices that can do recording, take photography. Once again, that gets back under ITAR again. But basically, we want to make sure that everything is secure and you and I aren't walking into an ITAR facility and we decide to start taking pictures of something that we shouldn't be taking pictures of. And that falls under the CUI, CTI um, buckets that you had mentioned earlier. So the security in 1791 is, I think it's pretty, pretty extensive. I was walking through uh, several years ago, uh, visiting a customer, and uh, the customer was a manufacturer of drones uh, that mm -hmm. they sell to the military. And uh, as we're walking through the building, uh, there was a room with windows around it, and in this room was a drone helicopter. Uh, mm. I would say about maybe third scale uh, of the size of a actual, you know, human uh, piloted helicopter. And I'm a, I'm a pilot, you know, I'm an aviation enthusiast. So I, I looked at that and, and I asked my uh, escort, is there any way I can go in and, and look at that? Uh, and he says, oh, absolutely. I just have to get clearance. So all of a sudden, two guys in security uniforms come down and grill me over what are the reasons I want to see it. And it's like, because I think it's cool. <laughs> I don't know if that's a checkbox, mm -hmm. right? Um, I said, look, if I don't need to see it. I, I don't want to cause problems. But um, I, I just, you know, I just find that as like the ultimate toy, you know, the ultimate game. And so they let me in. They, they were cool. Um, but it was funny. It, just asking to see something that was obviously there was and on display uh, triggered a series of protocols, you know, probably part of their procedures, you know, sure. some of the procedures you audit. The other funny uh, anecdote was many, many years ago, <laughs> probably in the late 80s, you know, I got into this industry in 1985. So this was probably 87, mm -hmm. 88. I was over at uh, a Hughes Aircraft uh, building in LA uh, next to the airport, El Segundo. And uh, I did not have a security clearance and I was in an area in their assembly area that, that was building uh, boards that required some kind of security clearance to view. 
And here was their security protocol. They had these tech benches, and they had this metal frame, like a shower, like a shower curtain rail, not like a shower curtain rail, a shower curtain rail mm-hmm. that surrounded the tech bench. And I had an escort who would walk about 15 feet in front of me and announce there was some acronym. It was basically, um, you know, a non-classified, non-cleared person is approaching. And each technician would just turn around and pull the shower curtain. It, it was, <laughs> they were powder blue shower curtains. I remember that. And, and they would, you'd hear, you know, the, the metal hoops pull along the, the shower rail, uh, the shower curtain rail, and close off visibility to whatever they were hand soldering at the time or, or yeah. whatever they were doing. Uh, and that was their security protocol. Shower curtains. Now, I can only imagine those shower curtains were probably, you know, $10,000 shower curtains because they probably had a mill standard attached to it. But, <laughs> but, um, but I just thought our national security is being protected by, you know, otherwise $3 plastic shower curtains. Uh, <laughs> and I, would, I, I can honestly say I haven't run into that scenario. So that's pretty good to that you share. Yeah, that, this but. was, and I, re, and I was young, I was in my 20s. And, and uh, you know, I'm just thinking, is this, this is it. You know, I thought it was, you know, James Bond and, you know, high tech and, and all this stuff. And, and it came down at least in that case, uh, to shower curtains. Anyway, well, I can tell you, I can tell you the, the companies that the validation services teams have visited, we haven't run into shower curtains. Usually it's, it's locked doors that require a, a badge, badge access doors to get in. And you are correct though. Whenever one of the validation service auditors goes to one of these facilities to do an audit, they're always escorted. That's always the yeah. case. Yeah. And uh, you're escorted everywhere, you know, except maybe in the reception area, of course. But other than that, yeah, you're not left alone at all. Yeah. But another thing you said, Mike, that's interesting, you know, we're both engineers and we both like to tinker around and play with things. So I get excited, too, when I'm at a mill aerospace company and I get to see some military equipment get up close. You know, that that that's one of the one of the uh, exciting things about this job is you get to visit so many different companies. You see so many different things. Like you said, you can't take any pictures of them or show anybody <laughs> what you saw. But it's yeah, there's no there's no bragging. There's no provable bra- bragging rights. You can't come and no. show your grandkids pictures of. <laughs> Uh, you know, the next generation cruise missile. But uh, yeah, it is, our industry is fascinating. You know, we, we are, um, we're an industry that builds everything that is around us, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you can be anywhere in the world and you're within just a few feet of something we build as an industry, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's IPC's theme, build electronics better. So you, yeah. you, you hit right on, hit the nail right on the head with that there one. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Okay. The fourth uh, pillar of trust is chain of custody. Now mm-hmm. for us civilians uh, or, or for the civilians listening uh, or watching the show that aren't in the EMS industry, they think of chain of custody kind of in a legal sense. If you've watched law and order or some, you know, legal drama, maybe Perry Mason back in the day, you know, you may you may have heard the term chain of custody, uh, but chain of custody applies in a number of of contexts, uh, including the one we're talking about. So, explain mm-hmm. what chain of custody is, and and uh, if you can provide some examples of why chain of custody is so important, and how controlling a chain of custody uh, would be part of a validation service. Sure. When the committee worked on chain of custody, like you said, there are several definitions to it. The committee wanted to focus on control of documents 
data, records, things like that. Um, some examples would be like uh, traceability records, uh, and that's a pretty broad term, but let's uh, talk about printed circuit board design. Um, you have your CAD files, which are the Gerber files, or if you're using the new IPC 2581, you know, the XML files, you know, those are very critical to the design of a circuit board. And of course, you have your schematics, your and then manufacturing of your work instructions, your drawings, the drawings that show you how to put the product together. You know, all of that has to be handled as part of your CUI, CTI. So all that has to be traceable, trackable, and you have to have a method of storing and you have to have a retention method for how long you keep these records. Most companies, because it's electronics and server space is cheap, they keep it forever, but it has to be secure. So the customer has to demonstrate that all of this information I just described is secured and people like you and I can't access it from our home laptops <laughs> or off of our phones. Um, also with chain of custody, what's also important is identification and serialization of the circuit boards, for example, as they move through the manufacturing process. Um, another one is um, that people forget about is scrap material and also the destruction of scrap and how is that handled. You know, um, the validation team have been some places where they'll take like a scrap circuit board and just toss it in a bin and then reclaim the precious metals. Well, that's not good enough. Someone can take that circuit board and reverse engineer it. So you have to destroy it. You have to grind it up. You have to do something to it so someone cannot reverse engineer it. And the standard goes in quite a bit of detail talking about that. Another one that's overlooked is shipping. You know, most of the time you just put boards in a box, wrap them up. We're going to ship them to the Mike Conrad house, 10 pieces, and out the door they go. But Mike, when you get the boards, you open up the box, there may only be nine in there. And you're scratching your head, where did that 10th one go? Well, that's a problem that the standard addresses. And they're wanting companies to do a closed-loop shipping process where they're tra tracking that shipment from when it leaves to when you get it to make sure that if we are shipping 10 boards to the Mike Conrad company, you actually get 10 circuit boards. And a lot of companies now are making it more difficult for people to uh, get into shipping containers and tamper with that. Um, and then also training's a big one with chain of custody. Like I said, a lot of a lot of companies they're not quite sure what it means. So we really focus training a lot, not only in chain of custody, but I forgot to mention in security too. There's also a training requirement regarding insider threat training. So employees who are not familiar with the terms CUI and CTI, they get the proper training so they can understand, so they know what the differences are between what should be classified as CUI and what should not. Yeah, very good. So back in uh, August of 2018, um, mm -hmm. the IPC 1791 Trusted Electronic Designer Manufacturer and Assembler Requirements Standard. Long, long yeah, time. yeah, yeah. You, you all aren't <laughs> known for um, concise, short no. phrases. Uh, our industry isn't. Um, that, that requirement uh, was released, or that the requirement standard was released. Yes. Um, tell me more about what all that is about. Tell me more about that standard. Well, sure. Once again, as we said, we covered the four pillars earlier, but the standard focuses on printed circuit board design, fabrication, and assembly. And recently, we added cable and wire harness assembly to the standard. So there's actually four separate audit qualification programs comes from that standard. And then there's a fifth one that we just recently added to for non-US locations. 
For example, when you look at the QML for 1791 that I'll talk more about here in a minute, we uh, did audit one company up in Toronto, Canada, and that was a circuit board fabrication shop. And we had to get approval to do that. You know, we had to get a sponsorship letter from one of the primes, one of the OEM primes, to say, hey, we support IPC validation services working with the executive agent to go up and audit this facility. So we, we have a lot of uh, checkpoints in the process to do that. But basically, you know, the standard, it's, as I said earlier, it's a DOD focused standard. Once again, it's for companies who provide products and services to the DOD. So once again, but we focus in those four areas, as I said earlier, design, fabrication and assembly, and then of course, cable and wire harnesses. And that's really what the, you know, that with the four pillars pretty much covers the standard. Yeah, excellent. You, you dropped an acronym, surprise, surprise, uh, a few moments ago, uh, QML, uh, which is Qualified Manufacturers List. Let's talk about mm -hmm. that. In late uh, 2019, IPC released um, the IPC 1791 QML, Qualified Manufacturers, mm -hmm. uh, Manufacturers List Program. Tell me more mm -hmm. about what the uh, 1791 QML is all about. Well, once again, getting back to um, our work with the committee and the executive agent, the executive agent, while we were developing, while the committees were developing the standard, the 1791 standard, the executive agent was out doing what I'll call beta site audits, kind of testing the waters a little bit and getting feedback that they could use to help make the standard better and also get more committee members. And then IPC then got involved and because we have the you know the marketing arm the sales arm we actually took over the program from the executive agent and started doing the audits at that time and as i mentioned it's a uh, we're starting to do these audits now for doing them for the last three years it's a three-year qualification um basically we have an audit process that that, uh, that we go through um currently um we have 34 company locations currently on the 1791 qml and it's a site base so um, we have one company that has i believe uh, 10 locations on it now and um you know others that we've been working with and the list continues to grow we've got to, the team has several audits to do here just in the next few months so it's been a very uh very popular program and it, it's growing quite a bit so all IPC standards are developed by us, mm -hmm. by you, by me, by you know, stakeholders. Maybe not right. literally you because um, you're not in the manufacturing side anymore, but, um, but you're, you're part of the process. A and mm -hmm. we, we regulate ourselves, and then we have committees, and then we vote. And, and uh, it's, a, it's a long, painstaking sometimes painful yet uh, beneficial process uh, to, mm -hmm. to create these standards. Uh, I would imagine 1791 is, is no exception to that. Um, so what types of companies drove the details of 1791? Well, as, as you can imagine, it was your high reliability companies, your military aerospace OEMs, and some suppliers, also um, circuit board shops who uh, are very heavily invested in the mill aerospace area, joined the committee. I can't remember exactly, but I believe we've got over 40 active members on the committee, and it's a pretty cross-functional group where we have representatives from, from each, uh, each parts of the industry, OEM suppliers, things like that. So we get a lot of good feedback. 
Um, we also get feedback from the customers when the validation service team's out doing audits. You know, during the course of the audit, the customer will say, hey, how come the standard doesn't talk about this? Or maybe this section should be reworded a little differently. And then the auditors will bring that back to validation services. And then I'm being I'm on the committee, so I'll take that back to the committee then and share with what we've learned with people out in the field. Because as you know, Mike, um, not everybody who sits on the committees, you know, that, that's only a small percentage of the overall industry. And, and a lot of companies who operate on tight budgets can't afford to go to our trade shows or participate on the committees. And But yet again, the, we give them the opportunity to share their thoughts, views, and ideas. And as I said, validation services will bring that back to the committee and that helps improve the standard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, while the the genesis of these standards seems to be rooted in military OEMs and contractors. That's there true seems today. to be that there could be a lot of valuable takeaways to, to the rest of us, to the commercial industry. So mm -hmm. how can this standard benefit uh, commercial OEMs, even if they don't, even if they're not actually part of the you know, validation service, there's gotta be some nuggets of takeaway because those four pillars of uh, trust and security and chain of custody and quality, uh, they apply to everybody. They apply to mm -hmm. someone making an electronic flea collar, you know, as much as a, uh, you know, a, a satellite. So uh, how is there any value in um, someone that's not really tied to, to military, that's not under a, a requirement to, to get certified? Um, is there an option for commercial companies to embrace this this uh, standard, um, either formally or informally? That's a great question. And you are correct. There's a lot of people in the industry who wanted something more. You know, the automotive industry, medical, telecom, and the industrial industry all have needs and concerns about cybersecurity. So basically, there's another committee, the 2-12C, that was formed, uh, I believe, a little over a year ago. I'm not sure on that. And they're currently working on developing a new standard it's called the 1792. Now, here's another long title, and I'm going to read it to you so I don't mess it up. 1792 is the standard for cybersecurity management in the manufacturing and industry supply chain. Okay, <laughs> another long title. But once again, um, this committee's been working pretty hard on it. Some committee members from the 2-19B committee that worked on 1791 moved over to this new committee, the 2-12C, to help develop 1792. This has more of a supply chain, I'll call it a general industry focus, kind of getting back to what you're saying. It is not tied to the DOD per se, but it focuses a lot more, not just on circuit boards, but also on the components and also on the final products and the process to assemble those final products. Now, currently this standard is in development. I'm not 100% sure where it's at in the process. I know they've got a draft done and I believe it's in review right now, but I don't have a date yet as to when that standard is going to be released. But, uh, but once again, IPC is pretty good about putting out emails, letting the industry know when new standards come out. But to answer your question, there has been quite a bit of development working on the 1792. And uh, I'm not saying that's going to totally answer your question, but it's a start in the right direction. Yeah, because the same things the military is concerned about, I'm concerned about. Although, you know, failure can be defined differently. Um, you know, if, <laughs> if someone steals my design, 
the the world is not going to end tomorrow. We're not going to be invaded, right. you know, by right. Russian troops or something. But um, but there's still a cost associated with that, right? Absolutely. Um, industrial espionage and counterfeit apply to mm-hmm. everybody uh, because there's mm-hmm. a financial uh, risk involved, if if not a you know security risk. So we're kind of playing in a time machine here. We keep going back and forth uh, to different times. But back in August of 2018, the IPC 1791 trusted electronic designer manufacturer and assembler requirements uh, standard was released. It's currently on revision B uh, with revision C in the works. That tells me there was an A, then there was a B, and now C is in the works. Mm -hmm. Um, Was revision B uh, and the upcoming revision C a reflection of changing threats or uh, changing technologies or all of the above, including other factors? You know, what, what is the mm-hmm. um, reason for the uh, various revisions in a relatively short period of time? Well, once again, the landscape, as you know, has been pretty dynamic with all the changes going on in the industry today that we touched on at the beginning of this podcast. But, uh, but basically, the Rev B standard, I feel, is in pretty good shape. But we, the committee's working on Rev C, really, once again, just to clean up a few things, uh, make some of the sections a little easier to read, a little easier to understand. As I said earlier, there's a lot of acronyms that we covered earlier, and we just want to make sure that the industry understands what they're reading when they read the standard. Also, as I mentioned earlier, the validation services team, uh, we've been out doing some audits. We've done over 40 audits since uh, since uh, we took this over from the executive agent. And uh, we're getting a lot of feedback from the members, the customers, the users of this standard. And as I said earlier, not all these companies can send people to Apex or to Summercom to sit in these committee meetings. So we'll val- the validation services team brings that feedback back to the committee. And like I said, we're just kind of... Um, it's not a, from Rev B to Rev C. It's not a major overhaul. We're just kind of just tweaking a few sections, as I said, kind of cleaning up the verbiage a little bit and just making the standard a little easier to read, a little easier to use. And uh, that's really that's really what this is. We hope to get Rev C out by the end of this year, hopefully by hopefully by December. I hope get it out before Apex. There you go. Uh, so, how does uh, 1791 compare or contrast with cybersecurity maturity model certification (CMMC)? Since we're floating acronyms, we'll mm-hmm. just throw a few more on the sure. table. Sure. Yeah, the cybersecurity maturity um, matrix certification. Yeah, that's a long, another long one. But um, one thing that I've done at IPC is I like to study the competition, and uh, the CMMC has been through a lot of iterations over the last few years. Uh, last year, they came out with CMMC 2.0, and they went from five different levels of accreditation down to three. And level two, I believe, will be the one that most people will want to go for once CMMC is finally released. And last I heard, I think they're targeting May or June of next year before CMMC will actually you know, actually get started. But who knows? You know, the government's working on it, and there's always a lot of tweaks and changes. But when you look at CMMC 2.0 level two, one of the things that's the same is both CMMC and 1791 require the NIST SP800-171. So if you plan to go for your CMMC level two, you got to demonstrate that you meet those 110 practices or requirements that are in the NIST SP800-171. Therefore, you have to have your SSP and your POAM that I talked about earlier. 
and those have to be up to date and uh, you'll have to present all that to the uh, C3PAO, <laughs> the certified uh, auditors that uh, the CMMC is going to have to go out and do these assessments. So um, there's going to be quite a few steps that you have to go through to obtain the CMMC certification. But that's that's where that's the big that's where 1791 and CMMC are the same. Other than that, as I mentioned earlier, 1791 goes off in these other areas with quality, supply chain, right. chain of custody that CMMC doesn't really touch on, especially for level two. And then level one, to meet the level one requirements of CMMC, you know, that's a much you know easier task. I think there's only 17 requirements you have to meet for that one. So it's a little simpler. Right. But still, it's it's very fluid right now with CMMC, and I recommend everyone to go to their website and keep up with all the changes that are going on with it. Right. It sounds like the uh, 1791 um, is more expansive and more comprehensive uh, with its uh, qualified manufacturing list and mm -hmm. uh, qualified manufacturers list and and other aspects of it. It seems to be a, for lack of a better description, a larger umbrella. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's available now. I mean, if companies want to see where they're at with their cybersecurity protection, 1791 is ready to go. You can purchase the RevB standard, read it, and see where you, see how you stack up against it. Do your own internal gap analysis and see how, 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 how it stacks up. And then, like I said, IPC Validation Services is here to serve the industry and help companies out that uh, you know have more questions in that area. Uh, global issues like uh, mm -hmm. the pandemic and supply mm -hmm. chain shortages have caused many manufacturers to at least reconsider reshoring or maybe nearshoring their manufacturing. I live in California, and within the first few days following an earthquake, there is a dramatic rush of people calling their insurance agents trying to get insurance, right? Or right. when there's a wildfire, everyone's calling their insurance company to see what their, their uh, fire insurance uh, uh, is at. Um, you know, and then... If there's a large earthquake, we may go to the store and stock up on water and batteries and, you know, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. But then after three or four days, we forget all that, right? And, <laughs> and um, you, know, we, we, you know, what we learn from the, the, the past is that we don't learn from the past, right? It's, it's that type of thing. So the, the reason for saying that is um, we, we tend to respond when the uh, criticality is high. Uh, and then as life goes back to normal, we tend to... Forget about that stuff until until we have another emergency again. Um, the the pandemic and the supply chain issues have kind of brought a lot of this um, uh, awareness to the shortfalls and pitfalls in our system, you know, uh, to bear. Um, have you seen a, an extra um, request for things like 1791 have you seen 1791 spike a little bit you know have you sold more course uh, more uh, more more standards uh in light of recent events in light of people working from home and homes maybe being less secure in light of supply chain shortages in light of the fact that container ships are are floating in the ocean for you know weeks and weeks and weeks before they're unloaded and uh, right. In light of all the um, uh, security concerns that we're seeing today, uh, is that driving a, a, a greater acceptance uh, and desire for something like 1791? That's a great question. Um, 
building awareness, I believe, is what IPC does very well through our marketing. And basically, IPC has been building awareness about cybersecurity and the cybersecurity work that IPC is doing. You know, I, we talk about 1791, 1792, and I believe there's going to be more cybersecurity standards developed here in the future. And I think cybersecurity is a concern for all companies, as I mentioned earlier, not just the mill aerospace sector, but for all the industries, as I mentioned earlier, automotive, medical, telecom. I think they're all concerned about it. And I think as we develop these new standards, I think what's going to be critical is we get the volunteers, we get the industry experts, the subject matter experts that know a lot more about cybersecurity than you and I, Mike, and we need those people in our committees to make sure we're going in the right direction with these standards. Because, you know, if we don't do our best and these standards don't, you know, meet the needs of the industry, people aren't going to use them. Now, I think we've done a great job on 1791, and I've kind of looked at 1792, and as I said earlier, I think that's going in the right direction, too. But I think that's just the beginning, and um, I think as time time moves on, you know, I think you're going to see more push to get more uh, more documentation out in this, in this area of cybersecurity. When do you accept, um, I won't hold you to this, but when do you expect 1792 to be uh, ready for prime time? Once again, I, I, I don't have any dates for me on that. I'll uh, have to pass on that question. Um, That's probably a, a wise answer, right? Yeah. Well, once otherwise, again, it's know, like, Randy said. Right. Well, once again, you know, you send a document out for comments, and then if you get some comments or some no votes, then you have to go back to the committee and address those, and uh, that, that can stretch it out. But I do know the 1792, it's getting close. And uh, if I get some information on it, I'll, uh, I'll uh, put that out in a future email or something like that. <laughs> there we go. All right. Uh, fair enough. Uh, and, and finally, if someone in my audience is interested in finding out more about IPC 1791 or becoming a trusted supplier, what's the next step for them? Well, the easiest step is just to contact me directly. Uh, my email address is real easy. It's just my full name, Randy Cherry, one word at ipc.org. And for my audience, uh, if you look down in the show notes, uh, if you're listening to this on your favorite podcast app, look at the show notes, and I'll have Randy's contact information there, as well as a link uh, to uh, 1791 in the standards section of um, Mm -hmm. the IPC store. Uh, And if you're watching this on YouTube, just look down and it says show more, Uh, click that, and you'll see the same. Um, So we'll, we'll uh, we'll try very uh, hard to connect you uh, with uh, Randy and uh, the resources that we're talking about uh, today. Um, it, once someone embraces the standard, once someone purchases a standard, uh, is there a typical uh, length of time? I know it's 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 uh, probably dependent upon. Uh, the cooperation of, of, of the company and, and uh, the availability of, of their team to supply information. But is there a, 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 an average amount of time before they can be certified, before they can go on a QML, uh, for example? That's a great question. Um, there's no right or wrong answer to this. Um, we've seen some companies take up to a year to, just to get ready for an on-site audit. The big one, as I mentioned earlier, is that NIST SP 800-171 and those 110 practices. And then having your AS9100, those are two of the big hurdles you have to cross first. And as and if you 
haven't gotten to those points yet, val the validation services team will give you some tips and ideas on how to how to get you along through the process. Some companies who have already been through that and are ready to go, things can happen in just a few months. So there's it just depends on how far a particular companies along with their cybersecurity process. You know, we work with the IT departments quite a bit, along with quality, human resources. There's a lot of different departments that are involved when you go through this standard. Yeah. Do most people who who um, make a decision to embrace 1791, do most of them already have some of those other um, standards in place, or or is it normal for someone to come with nothing in place and 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 have to rebuild everything uh, or build everything i should say we've come across a, a couple of companies like that but most of the companies are familiar with as9100 and the nist and uh, most of the companies are aware of cmmc that's been talked about for a few years now so a lot of companies have been moving forward and, and doing the right things to prep and get ready for it but once again they like to have what you call uh, like a third set of eyes to come in and just to make sure that to coin an expression, the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed. They just want to make sure that they're doing the right things. And the validation service team can help them and guide them down that path. Wonderful. Well, Randy Cherry, head of validation services at yep. IPC, thank you so much for being my guest today on the show. And, yep. uh, and, and thanks for um, explaining um, more details about that program. I really appreciate it. And for my audience, again, if you'd like to contact Randy, get more information on 1791 or validation services and um, look at the uh, show notes and uh, you'll be able to contact Randy. So Randy, thank you once again for being my guest today. I really enjoyed our well, conversation. I've enjoyed this too. This being my first uh, um, experience here with Reliability Matters. I've really enjoyed this. This was great. Good, good. Not too painful. Hopefully. No, not at all. It wasn't not painful for me. It wasn't painful for you. <laughs> Hopefully my audience found it uh, uh, not too painful and uh, I think um, uh, I, I think we accomplished at least that. So uh, thanks for being my guest. Well, that's another episode. Thanks for listening to or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Reliability Matters on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and our newest channel, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. A special thank you to Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat at pcbchat.com and Ascendo Reliability at reliability.fm for syndicating the show. Thanks for your questions and episode suggestions. Please keep them coming. Send questions and comments and episode suggestions to mike at mikeconrad.com. That's Conrad with a K. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, click the subscribe button and the bell icon to be notified when new episodes are released. We release new episodes on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month. Once again, thanks for listening or watching. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, and perhaps most importantly, keep doing it right. And I'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.